you for having me this morning. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to get to share. I, when I was young, I wanted to be a preacher really, really badly. And I told you last week, you know, when you pass out on Sunday morning on Easter Sunday, you realize you might not have that gift. So I love counseling. I love getting to sit with people that I've never met before who are hurting and they want to know, how can I apply God's love to my, my health, my, myself or my family? And so I'm glad to be able to come and speak. So I'm going to think more like a counselor today. So I'll be able, hopefully be a little bit more clear in what I share with you. When Barry asked me to come talk about some parenting matters and what I would decide I'd want to speak on, this was one of the topics that I, I just knew I had to talk about. I think in my journey, in my own spiritual growth as a, and in my personal growth, I think just being able to know that I'm not messed up, there wasn't something wrong with me, I'm not a defective person, was one of the most helpful things. And that sounds, some of you will go, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't, I've never thought I was a bad person. But to some of you, you'll know what I'm saying. You'll know that somewhere along the way, your brain got wired differently for whatever reason, and you, you just haven't felt good enough. So this morning, I'm going to talk about how can we, what can we do to trauma-proof our kids. We can't keep them from experiencing trauma, but we can, we can keep the trauma from changing the way their personality develops and changing who they are. You know, as a tree, as a twig is 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 sprouted out of the ground, it, if it gets a bend to a certain way, it kind of keeps that bend. We can put guy wires on it and kind of straighten it, but it kind of kind of goes in a certain way. That's good news and bad news. I like to focus on the good news. So in Proverbs 22.6, when God says, train up, in a child, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from that. I think that's that thing if you if you allow a child child to bend toward God that word train up is a word that's used three times in the Old Testament it means dedicate it's like dedicating the temple as a cause day dedicate your child their growth and development to, to God and your child will be bent that way it'll stay that way there are no guarantees in parenting are there and there are no guarantees in life this morning I hope I can share with you a I think it's an extremely powerful principle that you can apply to your children, to yourself, to your grandchildren, to your parents, to, to your enemies, and uh, I hope that you'll this will make some sense to you. The little girl in the picture there, you may not see it real clearly, that's our littlest granddaughter. We call her Bitty Bitty. Her name's Amelia. And she's covered in dirt. She loves to get out and play in the dirt and sand. That dirt may, in this picture, represent the struggles that she's going to go through when she begins to grow and, and learn about the, the dirtiness of life out there. And hopefully that picture can remind us that we can sometimes get dirty, but we won't be dirty. It won't affect us. So why talk about trauma? There she is, pre-mud and sand. And of all the people on the planet that make me feel God's love, I think Amelia does it most of all. She comes up and she grabs me and says, Papa, do you remember? I love you. Don't forget, I love you. <laughs> she reminds me that I'm, I praise you, Lord, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that for full well. One of our, one of our blessings from our children is they know that they're, they know that they're good. They realize that God makes them. They learned that in Sunday school when they're very young. I think it's the older folks in this that may not remember that we are a work of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
So why do I talk about trauma? There's three reasons I can think of, maybe four. One is traumatic events, and we'll talk about what that means, they greatly shape our brain, the way it gets wired. It, it shapes our bend in life. Children who grow up in stressful situations, um, they react differently. They feel differently. They behave differently. Trauma can greatly influence our personality. In fact, it does. <clears throat> Thirdly, changes the way that we view ourselves, how we view other people, and I think most importantly, maybe how, how we view God. Trauma affects how we view God. This verse in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, here the word says, Be not deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he shall reap. Whoever sows to please the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This morning in our Bible class time, I want to explain a little bit more about how I apply that verse even to how we sow into our children. Do we sow, do we, we pour in our children to please their flesh, to make them happy, make them feel good, have good self-esteem? Or do we sow to their spirit to help them feel the value that they have in the sight of God because God says they're his wonderful work? We want to be, we want to do things that are healthy for our children, right? We're motivated to have a, a healthy outcome. The next slide shows, though, on the left, you see the child who's experiencing some kind of a trauma. And there, there's two outcomes for this child that are kind of like the boundary outcomes. The top slide on the right is not the outcome we want, but it's probably one of the most frequently seen outcomes in counseling. The child begins to disintegrate as they grow older and, and mature and they see more of life's trauma and they are not effectively equipped to do that because they feel defective, they feel shame, they disintegrate. Their parts are not connected, literally. Our left and right brain don't work in co uh, connection as they do when we're healthy and we're not under stress. I love the picture in the bottom. It's, a, it's like a dry pond, dry creek, red, dry patch of ground, and there's that little seed of that beautiful flower that grows up in the middle of all that chaos. And that's called resiliency. When we help our kids know how to to live through trauma and process it and help their body heal from it, that's what happens. No matter how dry that ground gets, there's a resilient part of that child, that human being that will, that will burst forth and bloom. So what is trauma? You may think in the, in the DSM-5, our quote, <coughs> I use a quote here, Bible for the Psychiatry, Psychology, Counseling Profession, would say that there's certain criteria for trauma. It has to be something really big that you experience and witness. But I would tell you that I think trauma is a lot, lot broader than that. I believe that I would define it like this. Trauma is the betrayal of trust in an atmosphere where fear is present. So I'm afraid and I, and I make myself, let myself be seen so I, mommy, I need, a, I need something. And that trusting relationship of me making myself vulnerable because trust is vulnerability in the presence of fear. When I trust you, it means I'm afraid, but I'm, and I'm going to let myself be vulnerable in your presence. Do you see my, my, my nakedness, spiritually, emotionally, whatever that may mean? And I'm being vulnerable. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, they didn't see themselves in the same way anymore. 
they, they didn't trust that they were okay as they were before. And they were traumatized. Traumatized by eating a piece of fruit and having some knowledge. When a child feels intensely threatened by an event that he or she is involved in or they see, trauma happens. And I will tell you this, there are what I call big T traumas, capital T traumas like car wrecks and seeing somebody get murdered and all sorts of things like that. Child abuse, sexual abuse. And there are little T traumas. The little T traumas are that can accumulate. It's not being picked for the kickball team until last two or three times. It's having your friends laugh at your face and embarrass you when you're small. They're little T traumas, but when they add up, they tend to be the harder ones in therapy to work on. When someone comes to me and they've, they've had a horrific tra tragedy, they can usually overcome that. And, and, and the, the ones who are abused or neglected, and they don't realize they've been hurt. They don't realize how trauma and disappointment has been internalized in them. They've developed this lifestyle. They can just go through it automatically and think that it doesn't affect them until they get up in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 70s even. So basically, if we have a need that's not met, we have a traumatic reaction to that, even though it may be small. Well, how does trauma affect us? I want to talk to you this morning. Not, this is not going to be super scientific because I don't want to bore you to death or pretend I'm a medical doctor. But this is very important to understand how our brain works. Our brain is amazing. It, it truly amazes me how children learn to speak when they're little. When they're two years old, they can put sentences together. They don't have to learn grammar, spelling, or anything like that. They can just talk because they mirror what their parents do. Our brain has these these really important parts. I'm going to speak of them in two segments. I'm oversimplifying this, but we have a left and right hemisphere to our brain, and the left hemisphere seems to be more responsible for logic, order, uh, having things memorized that are structured. We talk about left brain people. They're, um, they're more like accountants or lawyers. They're logical. The right side of our brain is more the artistic piece of us. It tends to process more emotional, abstract uh, functions. So grandma's name might be stored in my left hemisphere, but grandma's picture and the smell of her cookies or the smell of breakfast cooking, that's in my right hemisphere. And so they, they're very much interconnected by this little piece of our brain in the very middle that's sort of like the nerve center and it lets things go back, back, uh, back and forth. Consider it like a stoplight if you don't, don't mind. And there are these three other parts of our brain, and rather than remember all the words, I want you to remember the thinking center, the emotion regulation center, and the fear center. Now the thinking center and the, the emotion regulation center, they're, they're close together. They're up here in the front part of our brain. And for children and adults, that's the last part of our brain that really matures. Our brain kind of matures from the, the brain stem as babies are born, and it starts growing and adding on. So the the primitive life responses of the fear, the joy, all those things are more like the older parts of our brain. As we experience life, we develop and grow, and our brain begins to make sense of the world. When children are born, they feel. They feel cold without knowing how to describe what cold means. They don't have to understand it. They just experience it. So feeling is the first thing our bodies experience when we start to grow as human beings. We start making sense out of the world because of this thinking center up in the front and this emotional regulation center 
So I want to illustrate for first the left and right brain. There's this great little picture I found online that the, the left side you'll see the words analysis, facts, statistics, figures, inquiry, calculate. Very black and white. Uh, that's probably where I was when I was a CPA. I tended to live over in that side of my head. It had to be logical. If somebody was panicking in the moment, that didn't bother me any. It was just, what do we need to do? One, two, three, four, five. I operated out of the logical left side of my brain. The right side of our brain is passion, creative, love, feeling. That's the folks, folks who are very artistic. Look at the beautiful colors and the creativity. I don't think I had much of that. I couldn't draw, I couldn't draw a stick man for you right now. That's okay. It's there. If I cultivate it, I can do a little better with it. So let's talk about the thinking center. So that's the left and right brain relationship. What about those other three? Thinking center, emotional regulation, and the fear center. Here's the thinking center. It's the very front part of our brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. What that does for us is helps, it helps us think rationally. It helps us to solve problems. It helps us to plan for events. And I want you to really remember this one. It gives us the capacity for empathy. Talk about that in just a moment. That's super important. Remember, that's in the front of our brain, the last part that develops as we get older. And then it also gives us our sense of self and others, an awareness of, of others and self. And I would add, it gives us our sense of who God is from a logical, need-to-know standpoint. So keep in mind now this concept of empathy. All right, the next section of our brain that we're talking about gets affected by trauma is this emotional regulation center. It's that purple area that's right behind, or it's almost, to me, it's hard to separate them from the, the front. It's right there, connects the middle and the, the outer part of our brain. It regulates our emotions, it's how we feel. It works real closely when we're healthy and it's ideal, but works very closely with our front part of our brain, our thinking center. So we can feel something, we can feel scared when we go to a haunted house, and we can know we're okay. In that moment, if somebody goes to a haunted house and they know they're okay, they just enjoy that, they're, they're, those two parts of the brain are, are doing what they're supposed to do, it's working great. And a third function of that part of our brain, it really, it's our conscience. It's where our conscience kind of lives. It helps us not do things that might be a little crazy and regret later. So when the, the guy in the haunted house jumps out at, at you and scares you, it keeps you from punching him in the mouth or kind of dress them to the ground or screaming and being embarrassed with your friends. It's like part that says, I don't want to regret this later. So the third part of our uh, brain, we don't have much control over that logically. You, you can't think this away. And I talked a little bit about this last week, about how, we, how God parents out of love, not out of fear. This part of our brain, is, it's, you probably can't even see it. It's a little blue dot um, right in the middle. It looks like about the size of an almond, and it's uh, beyond our conscious control. It receives all the information that comes into our senses, and it asks us one question. Is this a threat? Is this a danger? Is this a, am I safe? It continually processes and looks for any kind of things, like a gatekeeper to our brain, and it says, am I okay with letting this thought or this vision or this smell or whatever come in? It's responsible for our sense of smell, for a lot of our metabolism, uh, so a lot of that's included in that function too. It makes us feel afraid, it makes us react. It's our fight, flight, freeze, or fold response center, I call it. 
When we get under stress, adult or child, the blood flow in our brain actually changes. When that amygdala, and that basically, if you look at the next slide, it's called the limbic system, how all these parts work together, the colored parts there. When, when there's some sense of a memory, a smell, a sight, a sound, anything that can trigger, I'm not safe. There's a threat here. This part of your brain jumps into action and it, it demands, it's like a 50 kilowatt, 50,000 kilowatt heater, big giant power sucking here. It pulls all the power from your body. It pulls the blood flow to it so it can save you. It's automatic. God made us that way. We do not want to shut that down and we do not want to control it. Because if we did, we would go around doing stupid things all the time. Like putting our hands on the stove and it would be smoking and go, well, what if that's going on? We don't do that. You don't even have to do it twice because that little thing called the hippocampus, it's at the bottom here, it's in the green. That's a place that helps you create memories. It's sort of like the storage clerk for our brain and it puts those memories in places where it knows to get them and keeps those really scary ones, the ones that say you're not safe, keeps them real close by. If you want, if you want to know more about this, have you seen the movie Inside Out, Disney movie Inside Out? If you haven't, I highly encourage you to watch it with your children and process it. Those of you who have smaller children, maybe teenagers. It's a great way to describe what I'm talking about right here. Some of these emotions, how they get disconnected. So what happens in trauma? Well, there's two things. First, the left and right brain hemispheres start to get disconnected. It's like a circuit breaker. So when lightning strikes a tree outside my house and it runs down the roots and goes into the grounding in my house and goes through the circuits, what happens? If I don't have some kind of a fuse or a circuit breaker, it'll set my house on fire. Thank goodness we have circuit breakers. So when the overload comes, the system shuts down, keeps the house from being destroyed. And God has infinitely in his wisdom created us with a circuit breaker. The middle part of our brain click, it, it kind of goes apart. Now, you know why, how do you know this? So, if you think about having a tragedy in your life, something that happened really big in your life, if you think back about a funeral or a super sickness you had or an accident, anytime, there are probably a lot of things you don't remember. It's like, you don't remember the ride in the ambulance. A lot of people don't, don't even remember getting hit by the car. Like, how does that happen? It's because when that's circuit breaker goes off, that little thing, the hippocampus, it doesn't store any memories. There's no place to send them, electricity's off. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing that you can't remember the trauma. It's a really good thing. It keeps us from being overwhelmed. So in one of my jobs in therapy is to help people look at the wiring in their brain, kind of metaphorically, and what's happened in the body, where this is stored up. Before we re reconnect those two parts, to make sure that everything's gonna be okay. You don't want to turn that switch back on, that'll re-traumatize somebody. It's sort of like me, if you ever see me wire play with electricity, you know what I'm talking about. I try to put plugs in, I just turn the breaker on and test it. Not a good thing to do. Call somebody that's an electrician. <laughs> so left and right brain disconnect. And then these other three centers, what happens to them, the thinking and the regulation of emotion and the fear, you'll see they, they, they change function. The front part of our brain, remember, is gonna get less blood flow and that's our rational thinking and our emotion regulation. Both those pieces of our brain underactivate. They, they kind of go dead or dormant or less active.
And the part that gets all that blood flow is that little amygdala, the fear center. It's the SWAT team of our brain. Well, that's what's happening. So what, what has all this got to do with, with parenting, John, right? Well, because we need to know that there are ways as a parent we can help our child develop a resiliency that will help them deal with, with those circumstances. They can, they can be in the mud and they, they'll be dirty, but it, they won't get an infection from it and die. And that's what we're talking about. There's two approaches. One, I'll refer you to a book to read more about. I've got a couple of examples from. It, uh, it's a book called Whole, The Whole Brain Child. It's by Dr. Dan Siegel and uh, Tina, oh, I forgot her name now. She's a, anyway, there's two authors. Dr. Dan Siegel is, uh, does neurological research. And it's, it's, it's very practical suggestions that helps you as a parent learn how to connect with your child so that they are, that you're communicating. And let me tell you why this is important. The whole brain, uh, whole brain approach is important. Sorry, I get excited when I talk about it. It's important because when children are small and when children are 55 and they're 90 years old, when we're scared, when we're traumatized, when we're under stress, you know which part of the brain gets active more? It's that right side. It's the, the, the smells, the memories, all that creative, unorganized part. And you've heard the statement, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So the pictures are in the right side of the brain, the words are on the left. One picture over here on the right is worth a thousand words. So what if I have a thousand pictures? What's the math on that? How many words are going through there in my, in my computing part? Too many. It, it disconnects. And that's what happens. So what we're trying to do in this whole brain approach is let me connect with your right brain because that's a part that's, that's, that's working right now. Let me let you, as another human being, tell me about your experience. Just talk about it. Let me hear your emotions. Let me validate what you're feeling and experience. You know what we do as parents? We use the left brain. Grandparents don't do this. See, I've discovered this morning on the drive-in that this is a switch. I talked about last week, there's a switch that gets flipped. Grandparents don't do this. When you have grandchildren, you don't try to logically explain stuff to them. What do you do? Oh, what did what happened there? Tell me what you did. Oh, I saw you doing that. That was pretty awesome. You were so you you talk to the left, the right side of their brain. How did you learn to do that, grandparents? Nobody taught you to do it. Something happened that let you be able to do that. I think personally, it's because you're not afraid anymore. Those children aren't yours. Now there is some fear when they're on my watch. I'm a little scared something will happen to them on my watch but I'm not responsible for them. They, they've got a mom and dad. I can, I can relax. My fear level's gone down because I can breathe, I can relax, I can send them home. So you see what's happening in the parent's brain? The parent's brain is calmed down. You're able to function rationally and say, I don't care if they marked on my wall with a crayon. That can be painted over. Not a problem. Parents can't do that because a crayon mark on the wall is one more thing on your to-do list and you're already stressed. It's just kind of neat how grandparents get that switch deactivated. Wish we could do it for parenting. It'd be awesome. So the whole brain approach is learning some skills that in any situation you want to ask, you can 
you can learn to speak to that child's right brain, connect. So what you do, we're gonna connect with their right brain, we're gonna redirect with your left brain. We're gonna help them build that connection across there, because remember, it's disconnected, and we're gonna do a whole brain, whole child approach. I love this verse out of 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. Who also will do that? That's what God wants. So what do we do? Here's two simple little steps from, a, from strategies. From There are 12 of these in the whole Brain Child book. And again, I encourage you to read it, have a class on it, enjoy it. Step one is to connect with the right brain because that's what your child's trying to reach out and connect with you. So you connect with that. And then you redirect with your left brain. If you can't do this yourself, you won't do it with your children. So you know how I can tell if parents can or cannot connect? When I have parents come into my office and they say, I need 10 steps to tell me how to deal with my kid. He's not doing his homework anymore. He won't, he's staying up too late. Tell me what to do, tell me what to do. That's logic. And why is that left brain trying to do that? Because the fear center in the parent is is going on. So a lot of times when kids are brought to my office, they're not the problem. <laughs> I didn't say that. And I'm not saying the problem is the parent. I'm just saying the kid's not the problem because they come in and I'm going, I'm fine. They talk to me just fine. They're polite. Yeah, but you don't live with them every day. Right. So what if you can learn to live with your children in a way where they're, they're not a problem to you? Because they're not a problem to me. So is that what, would that be a good thing to have happen? A lot of times it's not, it's not to go over well if I say it. So I won't, if you come to see me, I won't tell you the problem. I'll just probably work with you instead of the child, most likely, for, for sure, up to teenage years. So here's the, here's the sense. As a parent, I've got to be aware of my right brain. Of, I've got to be creative, intuitive. I've got to feel. I've got to imagine, daydream. I've got to experience with my child. What are they, what are they what's having hold on them right now? Because in their mind, the world's coming to an end. They don't know what to do about it. And we want to engage our prefrontal cortex then because that's where the power of free will lives, I believe, in human beings, those front parts of our brain. The other part, fear center, that's not free will. You run up behind me with a snake, I'm going to jump. I can't help jumping. It's not my choice. It just happens. We want to teach kids how to operate not out of that part, but out of the, the front part of their brain. And we have to help them build those connections. So here's a strategy. Here, for example, instead of using this command and demand approach, we're going to, we're going to try something different. You may not be able to read this. The mother hears um, it's late at night. Kids what, doesn't want to go to bed unless it never happens to anybody. Mom, you never leave me notes in the middle of the night. You never, you never do things good. You never spend time with me. I hate homework. I don't want to go to bed. You have problems putting kids to bed at night? Do what I did. Get your little self back in that bed. Go to I don't want to see you out the rest of the night. If I have to come back in there, boy, it's going to be bad for you, mister. So which side of the brain is that child operating out of? The right. Nothing they're, nothing they're saying is making sense. They're saying stuff like, you don't care about me, you don't love me, you never help me in my homework. That reminds me of Exodus 14. If you read that chapter, the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. God did all this miraculous stuff for them. 
and then you get out in the wilderness and there's the, the, the sea and there's the horses and the chariots of Egypt and they see them and they, they panic, they're afraid, their amygdala takes over, we're not safe, right? And then they go to the right brain, starts going crazy and they cry out to Moses until our emotions coming out and then left side of the brain goes, didn't we tell you we didn't want to come out here? That's not what they said, but that's what they think they said in the trauma. What, you still have enough graves out here? You're going to bury us in a bigger graveyard? And you know what God does? God's a perfect parent, right? He doesn't rescue them. He goes, you know what? Since you don't believe, since you're not behaving, you don't get to eat your supper. You don't get rescued tonight. That's what parents do today. Or did I get that wrong? God told them, Exodus 14, 13, 14, memorize this verse, live by it. Do not be afraid didn't say don't feel fear. It says do not be afraid. Be afraid means operating out of the right side of your brain with no logic. Operating out of the fear center of your brain. That's what that means. Do not let that happen. Don't stay there. What am I supposed to do? God says stand still. Remember last week? Be still and know that I'm God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Calm down. Those Egyptians you see right now, you'll never see anymore again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep your peace. And he tells Moses, now start walking. That's, that's God's parenting example for us. That's the, instead of command to man and working on the right, the right side of the brain, uh, left brain, we try to do this to connect and redirect. So mom in this one, she gets on her knees, she puts her arms around little Joey and says, I get frustrated about things like that too. You want me to leave you a note tonight? You know what? I got some ideas about homework, but it's late now. Let's, let's talk in the morning after you got some rest. You see the difference? Now, that parent was able to do that because she realized that her child was not speaking to her left brain out of his left brain. Children, their left brain doesn't, it doesn't work very good. Sometimes. Sometimes. They're not supposed to. It's our job to help them build that side up. All right, so here's another strategy. Instead of what I think the authors call dismiss and deny, I feel it hurt my knee. Don't cry, it's okay, don't be sad, you're fine, just be more careful, let me kiss it, boy, it's okay. Do you see what's happening there? The parent is, is operating out of the right side of her brain out of fear, though. I, don't, I can't handle my child being hurt. Can you imagine how this would help you parenting? Your child wants to play travel ball and they want to have you out 20 nights a week till 2 in the morning and you're afraid you can't do it. So you, can you imagine what your decision-making process would be if you do it out of fear versus connecting with the, what, what's a child going to feel if they don't get to do what they want? That's, that's a normal feeling. Connect with that right brain and then redirect the left brain. Let them engage their logical Self. There was another picture I didn't include here, but instead of uh, a little girl finds a frisbee in the park, it's not hers. So she says, I'm going to keep this. And mom says, No, you put that back. That's not yours. You don't do things like that. That's the left brain strategy. And this mom goes and instead does a right brain strategy and says, You know, what do you think the person would feel like if they came back looking for their frisbee and it was gone? What if you had one like that and it was gone? Let's put it back so, so they can find it. 
You're teaching logic, moral reasoning. You're building a conscience of what's right and wrong. So instead, we do this, try to name it and tame it. You can't see this. I'm feeling hurt my knee. Well, that can hurt. I, I saw you running and you tripped and scraped your knee. Then what happened? That's what grandparents do. Well, mommy came. That's right. I held you and I rocked you. And do you feel better now? Yes. You want to show me how it happened? The more you let your kid just talk about it, the more you let your 55-year-old talk about the trauma without being re-traumatized again, without trying to fix it, without trying to tell them it's going to be okay, the more their brain can reconnect and move some of that stuff over to the logical side. It's biologically cool, isn't it? What makes this work? It's empathy. Now, you remember I told you earlier on, remember that empathy piece? Empathy's in that emotional regulation center out there. It helps us to connect with other people. I have a little short clip that we'll play to kind of describe this, and then we'll give So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put this little lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Empathy drives connection. It brings us, I feel with you. Sympathy is I feel for you. When we, when we have sympathy for someone, we, we give them a card. We bring them some chicken to the funeral home. And it's not saying these are bad things, but they don't connect us to people. It doesn't really make sense how fried chicken is going to make me feel better. 
It's going to make me feel better to give you fried chicken because at least I can do something for you. See the difference? Empathy drives connection, fuels connection. Sympathy will drive disconnection. We feel sorry for people. We feel for them. And there's four qualities of an empathetic, uh, empathic response. It's up with our children, with ourselves even. Be able to take a, the perspective of another person. Realize that what they see is real for them. It might not be the absolute truth, but it's what's true to them right now. Their world's going to end right now because they can't see their way out. If I can't take that perspective and accept it and be non-judgmental and say, well, that's stupid. If I, if I do that, I'm using my left brain. I'm going to disconnect from that person. At the funeral home, we say, well, God needed another angel. That's a logical way to try to make somebody feel better. How does that feel when you hear that? Does that make you feel better that your son or daughter or mom or dad or friend is gone? Absolutely not. People come in my office and they're angry. They call it insensitivity. I help people understand, no, it's not insensitivity. They're just, they're just unaware. They just don't know. Be able to recognize the child's emotion, know what they're feeling, and be able to pull one up in yourself that what would make me feel that way? And then be able to communicate that emotion with your child, like the mother in the previous slide. Oh, I know that hurts. Tell me how it happened. So what do I do then? We'll talk some more about it in Bible class hour. I want to give you a chance to ask some questions on how do you apply this to whatever like scenarios you may have as a parent or grandparent, um, minister, elder, teacher. Um, one of these verses, this verse here helps me a lot because everything hangs on this. Matthew 22, 37 to 40. They came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And you know him, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, equal to the same way. It's not... Jesus, others, and yourself. <laughs> it's Jesus, others, and yourself equally. So we do everything out of these motives. I do. I, I'm not telling you what to do. I never do that. I tell people I only expect you in counseling to do what you think is the most pleasing to God. What's the thing that will make you look, take on the character of Jesus himself? It's kind of like, what would Jesus do? And secondly, What's the most loving thing? What will help your child experience God's love, connect with it, and realize what it is, experience it? And what will help you also experience God's love and connect with it? Another verse I want to close with here is in Colossians chapter 2. And uh, again, we're going to talk about it a little bit this morning. You know, does that mean I'm a bad parent if I haven't been doing this right? Have I scarred my kids? It doesn't make us bad people. Bad choices don't, that never make us bad people. Remember last week, the prodigal son, the coin that was lost wasn't bad. The sheep that was lost wasn't bad. The son that was lost was not a bad person. But we have freedom in Christ to make our choices out of a loving, loving position. So in Colossians 2, uh, this is an example here in verse 16. So don't let anybody judge you, what you drink or whether you keep holidays or not. They're just they're shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Don't let anybody cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worshiping angels, intruding to those things he hasn't seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from where all the body nourished and knit together by the joints and ligaments grows with the increase that comes from God. The increase comes from God. When you parent your children, it's God gives the rest. We only have to do it out of love and not fear. And God gives the rest. He loves every soul. He doesn't have grandchildren. He loves every child. 
that's why in, over in chapter 3, he says this, verse 12, As the elect of God, holy beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. I don't know if I could list that my, my parents always communicated that to me. That's not the message I got. And it's probably because my right brain was so stressed out, and maybe they just didn't know how to connect. But I can see them that way now. <coughs> I can be kind and loving, forgiving, long-suffering. And if anybody's got to complain against somebody, forgive them, because that's what Christ did, and that's what we have to do as well. But above all these things, put on love, which is the glue, the bond of perfection or maturity. Loving our children with God's love, feeding their their spiritual conscience, not their fleshly, I want to do what I want. That's the secret. That's the gift of being a, a, a good, good parent that helps our children develop a good conscience. Thank you for listening. I, I want to offer this time, as we always do, for any needs that you have as a family to bring before your family and be uh, receive God's love. If you're not part of a family, church family, this is this is a great place to be. They're very interested in, in love and taking care of you, I can tell. So whatever need you might have, make that known while you, together we stand and sing the song.